Welcome to Gestational Diabetes Club. I'm your host, Helena, dietitian, nutritionist, vegetable enthusiast, and big fan of strong coffee and dark chocolate. Join me here each week to chat about all things gestational diabetes. We'll cover everything you need to know about your nutrition, lifestyle, and all the messy bits in between so that you can feel empowered to optimize your blood sugar, grow a healthy baby, and create sustainable healthy habits to last a whole lifetime without the stress, overwhelm, guilt, or confusion. Thanks so much for joining me, and I hope you love it here. Welcome back to Gestational Diabetes Club, the podcast. Very excited to have you all with me listening today and very excited for the lovely guest that I am lucky enough to be interviewing today. And you might have heard actually a previous episode where Steph and I had a chit chat, but today I am interviewing Steph Valakis from The Dietologist, and she is incredible. She is one of my biggest role models in this industry, so it's just Really a big pleasure to be able to have her on the podcast today. And I really want to take full advantage of picking her brain because she honestly is just like an encyclopedia of knowledge about all things reproductive health and fertility and pregnancy. So I, yeah, I hope that you are all as thrilled as I am to hear from her today. Um, and to tell you a little bit about Steph, she's got quite an impressive bio. I'll get you, Steph, to introduce yourself a little bit better than me. But like I said, she is the founder of The Dietologist, which is one of our leading practices focused on reproductive health. She's an accredited practicing dietitian, of course. Um, she is one of the finalists from the Allied Health Awards in 2020, 2021, and 2023. She's been there three times and she's just amazing. Um, anyway, that I, I don't know. You can tell everybody who you are a little bit better than that. So hello, Steph. Welcome. Talk to us. Hey, thank you so much for having me. I'm blushing. That's the praise. <laughs> Too kind. No, um, it's, it's good to have you. Yeah, thanks so much for, for having me on. And yeah, it'll be good to continue the conversation that we started having on on my potty. So that's awesome. So yes. Hey everyone. I'm Steph. I have a special interest in all things fertility, preconception, reproductive health and pregnancy. And I run a virtual clinic alongside a couple of other dietitians where we see people online from all over Australia and all over the world and help them with their individual reproductive health, fertility and pregnancy nutrition needs. So I was very inspired to move into this area after being a paediatric dietitian and I thought peds was the forefront of preventative health and um, whilst it is a very noble uh, area to work in and I did enjoy it, I realised I was working mostly with parents and not with children <laughs> as much as I'd hoped and I kind of started to notice trends where um, kids nutrition and eating behaviours were definitely correlated to parent behaviours and parent health history and what was happening pregnancy and preconception and really harked back to my university days of understanding things like Barker's hypothesis or the first 1,000 days of life, which I know we'll talk about, um, and the developmental origins of health and disease. And I realised that preconception health was ultimately the forefront of preventative health and how we're going to change the health of the next generation. And so, yeah, I went off and did a did a three-day course and came back with a fire under my bum to 
you know, start this business and and fill a gap in in the market and help women and couples who are trying to conceive or are facing things like PCOS or endometriosis to improve their their health and their outcomes, um, fertility or otherwise. So, yeah, that's a it's probably me in a bit of a nutshell in terms of what Good I summary. do. Yeah, gosh, we're lucky to have you. I would say you're <laughs> one of the. Uh, one of the first people I would say that we really saw doing this kind of work online and yeah, Steph has come leaps and bounds and I think holds us all to a really high standard of wanting to better our own knowledge. So yes, like you said, today we're going to touch on the first 1000 days of life, which I think is an amazing topic. And it sounds kind of boring when I just put it like that, but it's really all about how to get the most out of your pregnancy. And even if you're still in the fertility stage and you're thinking about getting pregnant, just how you can really use nutrition and your lifestyle to your advantage to get not only the best outcomes for you, but also for your baby. So Mm -hmm. really want to talk about everything that you can be doing and how much this time is so pivotal for your baby's life in particular. Because we do know that during pregnancy and even before pregnancy, so in that preconception and fertility period, that what you're eating, how you're living, it can have an impact on generations. So your baby, their babies, if they're a woman, um, yeah, it's pretty astounding. So we're going to talk all about that. And I I guess I'm just going to throw it over to you, Steph. So can you explain to us what the concept of the first 1000 days of life is for somebody who might not have heard about it? Yes. So the first 1000 days of life refers to the time frame of which uh, uh, the child's most critical window of development in terms of um, what they learn, what they're exposed to, and how that will shape their long-term health. And so that timer starts about three to six months prior to conception. Sperm takes on average about 74 days to go from you know, being generated to to kind of being at the end of its life cycle. And whilst we as females will carry all the eggs we'll ever have from about 20 weeks from when we're in our mum's tummies up until today, that last sprint of about 90 to 120 days towards ovulation seems to be most pivotal in how we influence the health and the quality of that egg. We won't change the DNA code that lives in that egg, but we can ensure that the cell health remains healthy. And so we understand that what is happening in the lifestyles, diets, environmental exposures, stresses in preconception all the way through pregnancy, so that's at another nine months, and then up until your child's about second birthday seems to be most critical in terms of programming their health, their long-term health through a concept called epigenetics. And epigenetics... Yeah. Explain that. Sorry to jump in yeah. there. Explain what epigenetics is. It's a big word and it sounds scary. So it does you sound scary. Tell us. <laughs> it does sound scary, but it actually should feel really empowering once you know what it what it's about. Because ultimately we are all have DNA that ultimately we all came from two cells to start with. A sperm from our dad and an egg from our mum, and all of our cells will kind of divide and replicate from there, right? And so the DNA within each of our cells and each of our eggs or sperm that we may produce 
is really not something that's super changeable. That code is that code is that code. But we can, just like a light switch, change the way that that DNA becomes expressed because there's little tags or little slight switches on the DNA code and different things can trigger them to go on or off. So, for example, a really simple example is diet. So, for example, diets that are richer in things like folate, B12, um, choline, things that methylate. Methylation is a is a common way that we can switch on and off different genes. So whilst, like I said, you can't change the underlying DNA code of any of us at this stage, we, we won't go into the weird and complicated science of, of researchers looking at that, but to simplify what we do with our diet and lifestyle can switch on or off different genes. And I don't mean genes like whether your child will have blue eyes or brown eyes. I mean genes like what will program them to be at increased risk of having things like allergies or asthma or heart disease or diabetes or being of a higher body weight. Those things we can actually change with epigenetic expression. So if you don't have good quote unquote genes, um, epigenetics is really, really important and is important for everybody. Um, and so I think that is hopefully an empowering thing rather than a scary thing because as soon as we say genetics, everyone kind of freaks out a little bit. But um yeah, it's it's a it's kind of like I say to people, it's a form of preventative health or a form of, you know, not insurance because nothing's a guarantee, but it's a form of proactiveness of trying to secure the health of your future child just like when your child is born you'll pop them on their on your medicare card or you'll make sure that that your private health covers them and all those kinds of things or you may freeze their cord blood just in case you need it one day you do these preventative things hoping that you don't need to access them or use them but with epigenetics you've got the power to do that in preconception and also in pregnancy and even in their earliest years as well. It's pretty amazing. And I think that it's particularly relevant for most of you listening who have gestational diabetes and you might be wondering like, oh my God, if I already just like stuffed it up, is my baby's future already kind of um, compromised based on having gestational diabetes? But it's it, like you said, I think it actually is really empowering to know that despite that, there is so much that you can still do and still have control over to be able to really optimize your baby's future. So actually, you know, I didn't prep you for this question, but it's a <laughs> common one that I see. Is it a myth that when you have gestational diabetes, your baby will have diabetes? Is it written in the stars or is um, oh, it? <laughs> that's a tricky one. Yeah. I think that's a tricky one because of a lot of factors. So, for example, if you have a strong family history of diabetes yourself and that is a factor that precipitates you developing gestational diabetes, which we know is true if you have a strong family history of particularly type 2 diabetes, um, then by you developing gestational diabetes, your risk of developing type 2 diabetes is increased. So then it's kind of like not like it's just in your kid's genes like that, that that's the case. 
I think the the layer to that is is like again, you can't really change that part. You know, we can't go back and edit the diabetes gene out of the system. But if only it were that simple, it's obviously more complex than that. But the the cool part is is that we know that things like type two diabetes can be optimally managed and and kind of warded off or delayed with diet and lifestyle habits that we can incorporate and then role model those to your child to help with minimizing the risk of not only you developing type 2 diabetes, but also potentially their risk of diabetes. But I haven't seen anything that maybe that's just ignorance from me of like, if you get GD, your child is more likely to have diabetes. Um, I've, I've certainly seen like, like that. a little bit of evidence around that, but nothing that seems concrete. And I think that it's something that we're definitely still working towards finding out. But I I think that you touch on a really good point there, that it's easily overlooked that there's a huge genetic component just inherently Mm. in terms of like having the diabetes gene, as you said, and insulin resistance and things like that. And there's just those two components, right? There's the genetic component, biological component you can't do really anything about for you or for your baby. And then there's like the world that you raise your child in and that you put Mm. yourself in because you can change all of those lifestyle factors. And that's really what this chat comes down to. But Mm. yeah, really talking about the details of what you can do in terms of your food and your lifestyle to give you above the best chance of life. So of Mm. life, of a healthy long life. (laughs) And so, no, we don't know exactly um, what the future holds for your baby, but I guess I want to reassure everyone that it's not a sentence to them definitely having diabetes in their future. Mm. Um, Yeah, sorry, I think I I just railroaded that. (laughs) No, that was an awesome contribution. I think, you know, with diagnostic criteria changing, higher rates of GD being diagnosed, we're going to see the the longitudinal data of that going to come out in, you know, the next 20 to 30 years. I think I would imagine that that would be the case. Um, But I think right now it would be hard. And I think you can't untie the biological and the lifestyle. And so, you know, separating those two things, you can't because really like everyone has to eat and drink and, you know, consume food. So you can't really like separate those two factors out. So I think ultimately, like I say with my fertility clients all the time, I can't change how old you are, I can't change your genes, but we can change these things. So, like, I know you're really stressed about your age and, you know, the DNA that's in your eggs right now, but nobody can change that. So instead of focusing our time, energy, stress on the unchangeable, let's focus on the changeable. Absolutely. Solution focused, thinking forward and being as proactive as possible still. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, Now, what are some of the key things that we should be thinking about when we are saying like in general, like creating that supportive environment? Are we talking about food? Are we talking about other lifestyle factors? Are we like what's more important are both equally important? What would you say? In terms of just general epigenetics, yeah. 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 Um, diet is one of the largest 
factors um, that can make a difference to epigenetic expression, dietary quality, um, body weight status prior to conception seems to be quite relevant, um, as well as other factors, things like exercise, how stressed we are. And I, I don't mean that. I do mean that in the like normal sense of the word of stress and like I hate talking about stress because then you talk about stress and then you're stressing about stress like <laughs> mind mind spin like not a good time but I think in the, st- the the research that I've read about stress we're talking about typically things like generational trauma and mm. not just your everyday I'm stressed about a work deadline kind of stress. We're talking about kind of trauma and and kind of very deep issues. And I think that that ultimately does have an impact. We know that mental health has an impact on health, physical health, and physical health has an impact on mental health. So I think that's undeniable. Um, but certainly there's differences in children's health in terms of how parents are mentally pre and conception in pregnancy and in early parenthood. So I think all those factors are relevant and certainly obviously my job as a dietitian is to hone in and focus on food and and peripheral lifestyle. So things like making sure our diets have plenty of fruits and vegetables and dietary fibre, adequate protein, uh, not too high in refined um, carbohydrates and as well some key nutrients seem to be particularly relevant for uh, preconception health, things like omega-3s, things like folate, uh, vitamin D seems to be relevant and important, Um, other methylation factors, B12 and choline, which I've mentioned. So there are certain things that stand out, but I think overarchingly when we look at the huge papers like the Lancet Preconception Health Series and whatnot, they're focusing on dietary pattern and and how is diet quality overall, and that's ultimately what we want to be focusing on largely. And then we can refine the details of key nutrients and supplements, and you know, minimizing stresses and and um, endocrine disrupting chemicals, and making sure we're exercising and enough, but not too much, and. All those factors are still relevant and pertinent, but I think overarchingly from the data that I've read, and it is a little bit old now, but it still seems to be the seminal research from 2018, um, certainly dietary pattern is what we're kind of looking at in terms of uh, preconception health and and optimising epigenetic expression for the better health of, of future children. That's so cool. It's so cool because we work in this industry and also if everyone listening, because yes, you can always control what you eat. Well, I shouldn't say always because there's always context and different social, economic circumstances, all that sort of stuff, Mm. of course, but it is something that is relatively within our control. And Mm. I've got two questions. So first of all, do we have a really good example from history or just like a time where we've actually seen that this is true? (laughs) <laughs> and mm. the diet does play a role. Like what can we tangibly look at to see this play out? Yeah, the probably the most historical example of this and where this kind of came from was the Dutch famine. So 
I don't, I'm not a historian, so don't ask me what year the Dutch famine happened or why it <laughs> happened. I'm a dietitian, not a historian. Ask me anything about ancient Egypt, ancient Greece. I'm mm-hmm. your girl. Ask me anything about the last hundred years. I don't know. Um, so the Dutch famine was a time in which there was reduced access to food, as the name suggests. And during this time, they did look at what the impact on pregnant women or women at different points in their pregnancy, early, mid or late, as well as preconceptionally and how that caloric restriction, um, I'm fairly sure their rations were something in the realm of like between 1,000 and 1,200 calories in that Mm. kind of zone. And it was dominantly you know, things like potatoes and other kinds of starchy vegetables. So there wasn't much in the way of protein or, you know, non-starchy veggies from my understanding. Um, and ultimately they then looked, followed the children. They followed the health of the pregnancy, but they followed the children. And what they started to see that 50 years later, so when these children were 50, that they were having higher rates of high cholesterol, high rates of obesity, higher rates of type 2 diabetes, um, high rates of mental health concerns like depression. I think there was one study about things like even schizophrenia. Um, there was a whole host of medical, physical and mental health concerns that just really seemed to affect this particular group. And this is where the very old, and this is so old, but this is what I studied at university, which is probably showing slightly how long ago I was at university now. But um, there's something called the thrifty gene. So basically what that means is the baby in utero adapts to this low energy environment. It knows it's not going to get much energy because of this external famine. And so it tries its best to be thrifty, it will try and grow in these low energy conditions. And anyone who's had very severe nausea, hyperemesis can attest to this. How on earth did I grow a three kilo baby eating literally crackers and Gatorade and spewing it up most of the time? And babies have this ability to adapt to the energy availability in utero. But what happened ex-utero, once they were born, was that the famine was over. And as they got older, the energy availability of the environment got very, very high, just like we live in a high energy available environment today. We can go to the supermarket, the store. We're not on on rations. We're not in a famine. We don't have food supply problems. Uh, and, and I'm excluding things like the cost of food and, and food insecurity and things like that, right? Like, there's access to food, right, in most people's environments, luckily. And so when we're met with this thrifty genotype, but this high energy availability environment, those things don't match up. So what then happens is we're exposed to high energy availability, but we're actually being kind of almost programmed to thrive, to not thrive, but survive in lower energy. So that meant that gap meant that things like rapid weight gain and metabolic health concerns associated with that higher energy available environment combined with that thrifty genotype led to that. And you can also get the reverse. You can also get situations where um, 
babies exposed to a lot of energy in utero and then they come out and it's a lower energy environment um, and that's then another kind of way that body size and things like that are affected. So it's certainly something to it. We don't call it that anymore. That's, a like I said, it's really old um, terminology, but that's ultimately like what I was studying and researching 10 or so years ago at university. So, um, I, and I think that's probably the, one of the easier ways to explain what happened with the Dutch famine. And I, I'm sure I messed up some of the details because I haven't looked at the history of it in a long, long time, but that's the crux of of that historical event and how we then developed Barker's hypothesis, the developmental origins of health and disease, and ultimately started to form this first 1,000-day-of-life picture, epigenetics and all that stuff, because our DNA does not change that quick. Your DNA, our genes do not change. For goodness sakes, we still have bloody wisdom teeth. We don't need Mm -hmm. them. We don't need them. Why doesn't our DNA just like... Stop growing wisdom teeth. It won't. It'll take generations and generations and generations and thousands and thousands of years for our DNA to change. So the gene code didn't change because their mums and their dads didn't have these health conditions, but they did. So they started to look at the environment and what happened in those pivotal, critical windows of health. So, yeah, super interesting. Um, Obviously an awful time for the people, but, um, yeah, from a science perspective, it was almost like an experiment that would never get ethical approval. Absolutely. It's fascinating, isn't it? But it is um, Mm. cool for us now to be able to look to that, to see, wow, like something really happened there and to be able to unpack it and understand it a little bit. And so I think that was a really good crash course in, yeah, how we can look to that as a key example of what we're talking about here. Um, Mm. So... My next question is around those key nutrients because you mentioned some of them. Can Mm. you rehash what those are and how do we know if we're getting enough? Like, do you just go and get a blood test? What do you do? Do you just take a supplement? Like, explain. (laughs) Yes. Great questions. So there's many different nutrients for many different jobs Um, and, and certainly there's kind of adequate, optimal, you know, increased demands and unique situations. So ultimately, with things like nutrient specifics, lab work, supplementation, you ultimately want to be guided individually by a healthcare professional if you have the ability to access that. Because just yesterday, I did three three or four supplement consult consults, and I came away with three or four different supplement plans. They're all people trying to conceive or newly pregnant. Why? you know. Um, So ultimately, it is individualized. So with that caveat aside, key nutrients, certainly folate. Folate has the ability to methylate and help with that epigenetic expression on off off switch. Not only that, it's also helpful in preconception to improve ovulation and rates of fertility. And ultimately, it's mostly known for its beneficial role, specifically folic acid, in preventing neural tube defects. Um, It's not just once a neural tube is closed, you put your folic acid in the bin. Folic acid's job is also to help with rapid cell replication, and you're going to go from about this baby of the size of a jelly bean into the baby that's the size of a cabbage. So there's a lot of cells being divided. Mm -hmm. So 
we definitely don't want to be binning our prenatal vitamins too soon. Uh, B12 is a friend of folate, so that's also another uh, helpful nutrient. Uh, Increasingly, I'm seeing a lot of people with not great B12 levels, and I imagine this is a combination of maybe some not great absorption, maybe we are not eating as much meat, which is probably your most bioavailable source. I don't know why I'm seeing, I'm just seeing it a lot at the moment. Um, and these are people that are eating eggs and dairy and meat and fish and chicken, and you'd think it would be fine. Mm. Um, but don't assume that just because you're not vegan that your B12 is okay. Um, that would probably be a, a little tip. Um, and we kind of need B12 to work together with folate to do its job. So it's a pretty important one to keep an eye on. And the third one that kind of goes along with that is choline. And choline is not particularly famed for its preconception benefits, but certainly for its pregnancy benefits in terms of supporting the health of the placenta and also supporting baby's brain development in particular with longitudinal studies showing improvements in things like IQ, processing speeds and school behaviour and school scores at around age seven. Um, so that's probably another one to keep your eye out for. It's particularly found, it's most richly found in egg yolks. Um, you can find it in meat and dairy and quinoa and peanuts and endamame beans as well, but probably the most efficient way to get it in is eggs. Um, that nutrient is particularly lacking in the Australian population. The last study that was done on it showed that less than 1% of Australian women are getting enough choline. Um, and with the researched uh, benefited dosages, um, we're talking more than double the, the recommended daily intake that we currently have. So it can be quite tricky to get that through diet alone for a lot of people, particularly in pregnancy when you layer food aversions and preferences and all those kinds of things on top it can be quite tricky so and just not even knowing that it's a thing yeah. <laughs> yeah a whole lot of people I speak to don't know um so if you're listening and you're like the hell's bloody choline you're not mm -hmm. alone like you don't feel yeah. like you are behind in some way and that everyone knows this secret thing that you don't that's <laughs> if we we need to do a way better job of getting that known to everybody I think and yeah, yeah. We're, we're getting getting there but um yeah that's another factor, yeah. I think, too. Absolutely. And I think to a degree, I think that's because there's this hypervigilance and hyper-focus on, you know, folic acid and that's the only thing that matters and then forgetting about things like iodine for thyroid and baby's brain or omega-3s to reduce the risk of preterm labour, support the baby's brain and eye development, help with inflammation, which is a big factor when it comes to egg and sperm quality, um, all these things, right, like they're all important, they're all relevant. And when I have conversations with medical practitioners, they're like, yeah, but it's just a battle just getting my patient to take folic acid. Like, what do I do? I'm like, yeah, yeah, but if it's a battle to get them to take that one tablet, might as well make it a better tablet than that. <laughs> um, yeah. So, I mean, I think ultimately I think it's a, an inability and, and a lack of time to sit there and actually go through and explain. And so, therefore, the onus becomes on the individual to educate themselves by listening to podcasts or, you know, reading blogs or taking courses or all those kinds of things. And when we're busy and tired and feeling like 
crap in pregnancy that's not higher up on the priority list. So certainly I think there's a whole range of key nutrients I probably keep going and going and going. But I, I think the big ones, particularly for preconception and in pregnancy, are folate, iodine, B12, choline, omega-3s, and probably vitamin D. It doesn't mean you need to take all those things separately. It doesn't mean that's a supplement prescription from me to listener. Um, it's just things that I would be cognizant of. And in terms of testing, you can't test all of those, but certainly testing things like folate, B12, vitamin D, and iron um, are certainly relevant and important in preconception. Um, and usually I retest things like iron and vitamin D pretty regularly throughout the pregnancy because things like iron and vitamin D deficiency can affect not only you and your energy levels and your chance of having a nice feeling pregnancy, a feel-good pregnancy, but um, also your baby. So yeah. ultimately those ones I watch a bit more closely um, and particularly in people who are at higher risk of, of gestational diabetes, for example, I would say things like vitamin D and omega-3s are probably even more pertinent because of their role in things like insulin resistance um, and helping with insulin resistance. There's been studies done on just prescribing vitamin D to people with type 2 diabetes and seeing improvements and similarly with omega-3s. So there's certainly some nutrients of focus there and, and we can talk a little bit more about other things to factor in in terms of GD risk. Um, yeah, 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 and we will. I just also want to say, like, thank you for also normalizing, I think, in a way there that it is overwhelming. It's mm. overwhelming. And so thanks for, like, summarizing what the actual, like, key ones are. And, uh, yeah, I think that's also probably just a key part of this of you don't want to spend the time, like, researching and doing all of that in your spare time most likely because it's just like where do you even start and how do you mm -hmm. know where to look and all that kind of stuff. Like, I get it as well. Um was I going to say, I also wanted to throw in another key nutrient because mm. I think I see a lot of women falling down on this, not just in this stage of life, but all stages of life and particularly in older age. So get in the habit now of calcium intake. And mm. you're also really vulnerable to bone breakages and fractures and things like that during pregnancy and if you're breastfeeding as well, post-pregnancy. So I just want to throw it in too, but you can't test that one on a blood test either, unfortunately, no. really accurately or and reliably. Um, yeah. I mean, the most accurate way to assess calcium status is is through taking a diet Dexa. history and a Dexa. also DEXA scan, which you can't do when you're pregnant. And honestly, most people are not eligible for oh. unless you're willing to pay out of pocket. Um, yeah. So, you know, I wouldn't I be recommending them. Yeah. I, I wouldn't be um, recommending them. And also like one in, what's the statistic? I think it's one in four Australian women don't get enough calcium, but I, I reckon that's an overestimate. I think it's a lot lower than that. I think a combination of milk alternatives emerging, yeah. fear about calcium rich foods, dairy, misinformation about calcium rich foods. Like people telling me that spinach is a good source of calcium yes. or I eat lots of leafy greens. I'm like, it's doing nothing. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And it, look, milligrams a I worked it's in like hospitals for too many years seeing women break their hips and then bounce oh. in and out of hospital to think that it's a minor problem in our population. Obviously, that oh. was an isolated population that I was dealing with, but it was pretty um, heartbreaking to see that. So yeah. start now, start now getting more calcium. But that is not what this is about. So we've talked about kind of testing them, but 
what do you do? Do you just supplement these things? Is that the answer? Or um, can we focus on our diet? Both. both. Uh, ultimately, yeah. things that are too high risk that, you know, if they, you are not consistent, you are sick, you are anything, like we have data that we should ultimately be supplementing every single person who hopes to become pregnant or is pregnant with folic acid and iodine as a minimum. And I think omega-3s is almost at that stage now where it'll be compulsory just like that. Um, your diet is not enough even if your blood work looks perfect because of the increase in demands that you will have. And ultimately, nobody likes rolling the dice on hoping that your diet's adequate on any given day. So even if you have a great diet and you're able to maintain that, I I just wouldn't. Um, some of those other things, you could look at your diet, you could look at a combination of things, things like vitamin D is obviously not that efficiently received from nutri- like your foods, so mm. sun exposure, and then you've got all the other ramifications of promoting sun exposure in a place like Australia. So most of the things that we're trying to do, I mean, obviously I work in a very niche population group where I'm often up against the clock. I don't have time um, to wait for people to eat more iron-rich foods and have their iron improve. Once you're pregnant, like if your iron's low, it's low. I can't reverse time in pregnancy. So we just got to get it up and as quickly as possible. So, yes, a lot of the time that does mean using supplementation. Um, Judicious selection, um, monitoring of the improvements, having a backup plan if it doesn't work, um, making sure you're taking the right form at the right time of the day without any inhibitors. All those things are important and need to be counselled on. And I think that probably sits maybe outside the scope of today's conversation. Mm. But um, I think ultimately people are going to have different comfort levels with things like supplementation. Some people want to just I just want to know I'm getting enough of all these things and I want to feel reassured. So just tell me what supplements you take and I'll take it. Um, and I'll still work on my diet, absolutely. And there's some things that you just won't get 100% from supplementation. Choline yeah. is a great example of that. You just you would be taking too many capsules. It's too large of a nutrient. Um, but you can make it. You can make a judgment. Same with calcium. You can strike like if you're somebody who doesn't really like dairy foods that much, or the alternatives, or other calcium-rich foods like bony fish or calcium-set tofu, and you're like, ugh, hate all of those. Well, I usually like do a little bit of a negotiation with my clients. All right, you meet me halfway with your diet and I'll meet you halfway with the supplement and we'll get to 100%. How's that sound? Yeah, cool. So all of those things are very nuanced and there's going to be gaps that you're going to have to fill either with a supplement or the supplement gets you so much of a way it leaves room for the diet to kind of meet the rest of the demand. That's going to be practical for some people at some stages and, and other at other stages. So you know, first trimester is usually not a great time for most people. Um, or if you have very prolonged nausea and vomiting, it's not a great time for, for some people. When you're thinking about managing something like GD, typically our focus, especially in the early days um, of finding out you have GD and working on your diet, like the focus is typically so intently on carbohydrates and uh, carbohydrate load and carbohydrate type and carbohydrate distribution and how what are we eating with our carbohydrates and of course we're all aiming to improve the overall diet quality to support the health of the pregnancy simultaneously but sometimes um, people just eat to the carb counts and so the nutrient density can sometimes not be there um, yeah. so that's another thing to think about as well so yeah I think there's there's lots of angles that you can come at it at. It's just yeah. going to be 
based on what's practical because I often see a lot of women in the first trimester being like, oh, I didn't think this would be me, like struggling to eat a vegetable. I love vegetables. Like why is this? I feel like I'm doing the wrong thing by my baby. Like, Mm. you know, and so I don't want to like exacerbate that feeling um, because that's like 80% of the case for 80% of pregnant (laughs) pregnant women. So that's okay. I I think sometimes you'll rely more on supplements and other times you'll gag at the thought of them and you'll need, will need to be more clever with diet and, and other work around. So yeah, it's just, yeah. it's just the nature of pregnancy and pregnancy symptoms. You just got to be really flexible and accommodating. Mm. And I, I've got a couple of things I want to touch on. Like I know we've got limited time today, but I think you touched on one really important point there which I wanted to bring up in terms of having GD, I think that that could actually increase your risk of not obtaining all of these really key nutrients and potentially underfueling. because a lot of the time I do see people cutting things out unnecessarily based on things you might have heard or worries you might have and thinking that you need to and therefore just like under eating in general, not eating enough carbs, which are really actually important sources of nutrients depending on the types of Mm. carbohydrates that you're choosing and just in general having a bit of a chaotic diet and not (laughs) being that well thought out because it is another layer of complexity, especially when you're not somebody who's immersed in the world of nutrition. And so it's easy to... um, I guess, not really know what to focus on and to just be throwing things at the wall and seeing what works for your blood sugar and just laser focusing Mm. on that. But I suppose this is your reminder to zoom out and don't think about always restriction and think about what else you can add in to your diet to make it more nutrient dense and don't cut out your carbs. You don't need to and you don't want to because we really want to be optimizing all of these outcomes for you and your baby as well. Um, I suppose some questions for you, Steph. So the best way for me to frame this. So if you do have GD, are there different nutrients that you should focus on or is it essentially similar? And I also want to say like, do you have like kind of non-negotiables with your clients or that people should know in terms of things that they can practically include in their diet or is it just basic healthy eating? Well, ultimately, most people are diagnosed with GD, you know, around 26 to 28 weeks, sometimes much earlier. So, you know, we have a few months, you have your final trimester where you have an increase in energy requirements, you need more iron, you need more omega-3s, you need probably a bit more zinc, uh, be paying attention to your vitamin D. But the main things that I'm typically screening for GD or not is things like inadequate energy intake because as the baby gets bigger um, and we know that babies can get much bigger particularly with gd if it's unmanaged the real estate of your abdomen starts to to get tight and so your stomach size tend typically tends to be a little bit squished and so the amount that you're able to eat versus the energy demand typically there's a bit of a mismatch so Looking for things like that that we would look at in anybody trimester three um, is important. But I think what happens with GD personally, and this is probably a bit of an unpopular opinion perhaps, but I think you may be able to resonate with this, Helena, is that with gestational diabetes, there are a lot of appointments. You've got seeing your OB, your midwife. You've got seeing... um 
your dietitian, for your GD management, maybe a diabetes educator, maybe an endocrinologist. And then you still got, you know, your normal life to live. And then you're thinking about food and blood sugar levels and carbs all the time because, you know, that's that's what you've learned and that's how you have to manage. And so ultimately, personally, I think the problem that I personally have is that people simply do not want to come to more appointments to do the optimizing stuff. They just like, tell me what to do to make sure that my blood sugar levels are in range. And that's all I have capacity for because I still have to buy a pram and a car seat and wash all the baby clothes and go to work and do everything else. And like, I 100% respect that. And so ultimately, I think people with GD do somewhat have a disadvantage, not that it's their fault or our fault. It's just, we just hit a, a brain overwhelm point and there's only so much that any one human can take in in the, the span of 12 weeks and nothing changes really ultimately overnight in nutrition land. It's it's tweaking and refining and making changes. And so I think to a degree people with GD do miss out on some of the optimising stuff of going, oh, is your vitamin D at the best level it could be because that's another blood test? or yeah. and. And that's just not the priority because the alarm bell is already up to your team. Oh, this person has GD. This is already a higher risk situation. And that blinds everything else. That blinds the iron status. That blinds the vitamin D status. That blinds if the person's eating enough or exercising enough or how's their mental health in anticipation of birth. What about birthing classes? All these other things because that That cloud has taken up. Exactly right. It's just a big weight. And so... Like I find it hard because I'm like, yeah, I'd love to talk to you about ABCD, EFG, but they just get appointment fatigue. They're like, oh, I'm just sick of coming to the consults all the time. But let's say they are. They are wanting to really focus on nutrition and because I certainly see a lot of women who are in this situation, but they're doing the really proactive thing and they're still coming and seeing me, even though I'm giving you another appointment every single week in my coaching programs. (laughs) But we can really focus on some of these things. So what are some really Mm. practical ways that people listening, and even if you are in that really overwhelmed like state of just this huge, enormous mental load, which we know is there, Mm. what are some easy things you can do in your diet, like starting now to really boost your nutrition quality? I would say things like incorporating a couple serves of oily fish per week. Um, for omega-3s, particularly towards the end of third trimester and in in anticipation of birth, we taper off fish oil supplementation. So you've got this opportunity to um, boost it through your diet. So salmon, ocean trout, sardines, mackerel, anchovies, those things, if you can incorporate them twice a week in an ideal world. Um, Things like healthy fats, things like extra virgin olive oil, nuts and seeds, avocado, um, I think that's a really helpful one to be focusing on. And then your iron-rich foods. Look, I always hesitate to say iron-rich foods, but, I mean, I'm a dietitian, like that's what Mm -hmm. we say. But ultimately, like, however you need to increase your iron status so that it is optimal by the time you deliver, do that. If it is iron-rich foods, which it's unlikely to be if you're already low at that point. Um, It just takes too long to increase Um, iron supplementation, iron infusion. Ultimately, babies don't get that much iron from breast milk. They get some, but not much. So ultimately, the iron in their body from in utero 
till the time that the cord is cut is what needs to last them until you start introducing solids where their iron demands start to increase again. We need to supplement that through um, solids. So I would say that those three things, was that three things? Yes, that was three things, um, would be like what I would focus on outside of thinking about like carbs and GD stuff. Um, yeah, the iron totally. one's probably the most most scary one, I would say. Um, not to like instill fear in the hearts of people, but um, you don't know how birth is going to go, and ultimately, it is a higher risk time where you may bleed a lot. Um, you don't want to be particularly low in iron going into that, and also poor iron status, poor omega three status, poor B vitamin status are all risk factors, increased risk factors for postpartum depression. So I would say those are probably your most relevant. Yeah, and I would say just summarising that, here's what you need to do. After listening to this podcast, you're feeling really motivated, (laughs) you need to make sure you've had a blood test and you've checked off on some of these levels Um, and then you need to supplement where appropriate, ask for some guidance around that number and you can tell me if this is an accurate summary. Number two, you need to think about incorporating oily fish. So, can you have salmon for dinner tonight or tomorrow or this week? When are you going to have some salmon in your life? Mm. Um, and no, it's not really a risky in mercury. The benefit far outweighs that in terms of the omega-3s you're going to get from that. And if you're not a fish eater, please go have a talk to your dietitian or your GP or your doctor, whoever's looking after you, about supplementation. Really important. Mm. Number three, other healthy fats. Make your default oil, extra virgin olive oil, and have a handful of nuts today or have some avocado on your toast, whatever it is, one of those three things. And number three is going to be, ooh, I've already forgotten what you said, (laughs) getting in some more colour. Yeah, and iron. We want to make sure you're getting in some iron, and I would say base that around your blood test. But then I'm going to throw one in. Make sure that you are getting at least three colours on your plate at your next main meal so that we're getting lots of different nutrients and antioxidants. But what would you say, Steph, is that a good summary of what we can do really practically today? She's done a chef's kiss. Chef's kiss. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for summarising my erratic thoughts. (laughs) It's fine. Any final thoughts? Because I know that we both need to run today. I could talk to you for hours, as you know, but any final thoughts to leave the listeners with? Um. I think I think this conversation around first 1,000 days of life and epigenetics and GD and Dutch famine and all this stuff, it places pressure on you as and it feels very individual and it's not a personal attack on you, <laughs> the listener, to be like, do better. But yeah. I think ultimately... What I what I find as someone who works in this space is that it's not about it being scary or hashtag no pressure. Like it's actually about you knowing this information and then what do you do with that information and how do you transform that into doing what you can without whilst being productive, not being paralyzed and not devolving into a sense of perfectionism about it either. Like, oh, my gosh, my child licked a birthday cake. Like their epigenetics are doomed. You know, that's not what we're talking about here. 
and that's not helpful. Um, what we're talking about is overarchingly, and I think the other thing is is that I think getting some external input, even just one time, yeah. one time to give you a litmus check of like where you're at is so important because I can ask anyone on the street and they think they have an incredible diet. I sit down and do a consult with them. I have like 10 to 20 things I would like to change about it. And it's not yeah. to make it perfect. It's just to make it better. And I think that we all have a bit of a skewed idea of what we think is quote unquote healthy because we label the way that we eat. Oh, I'm a vegetarian. Therefore it's healthy. Oh, I'm vegan. Therefore it's healthy. Oh, I don't eat red meat, therefore I'm healthy. Oh, I eat vegetables at lunch, therefore I'm healthy. Our definition of what we think is healthy eating is, is only within ourselves. And so getting some external professional advice on that is, I think, really important at least once. So you have a litmus of where you are, where you should be, and what you need to, what steps you could potentially take. So, yeah. I love that. Healthy eating is flexible and it's about small tweaks it's not about overhauling everything it's not about perfection and we know the mental load is there and I also just think tying in with that your dietitian's on your side we are not here to yell at you and say (laughs) you're not doing well enough you're not getting in those nutrients like we're we're here on your team actually to help Mm. you incorporate that and we're not going to be yelling at you if you show up and your diet is currently crap we just think about okay what's the lowest hanging fruit that we can really um latch onto here and change and same with like you know it's the same as when you apply that to gd and we're like we're not actually out here like we're going to catch you and put you on insulin straight away it's nothing like that we're here actually just on your side to try and reduce that mental load so you can outsource part of the problem and let us take the reins in being proactive and giving you the solutions about what you can practically do in your life day to day Thank you so much, Steph. Like that has just been such a nice chat. And I, yeah, I always love having you on the podcast. I think we'll definitely do this again. There's so much we could talk to you about. And I think everyone will have really got something out of this episode, or I hope you have anyway. And please let me know. I always love hearing from you all. But thank you, Steph. Where can we find you? Yes, you can find me on Instagram at the underscore dietologist. Uh, and also our website, thedietologist.com.au, and our podcast is Fertility Friendly Food. We've got over 100 episodes, so something for everybody. Yeah, go listen. You'll learn something. You'll learn a million things, actually. Um, <laughs> Steph's brain just doesn't stop. It's very, very cool. So thank you again. My I hope pleasure. everyone enjoyed. Thanks for having me. Bye. Bye. That is it for today's episode. Thank you so much for listening. And if you haven't already, please make sure that you subscribe or hit the plus button so that you can get new episodes delivered straight to your podcast app every week. And if you did find this episode useful, I would appreciate it so, so much if you could leave a rating and review or share it with a friend. It helps me reach more people so that I can help them take some of the stress out of gestational diabetes too. And if you want to keep learning about all things gestational diabetes, head to my website to find all the ways that I can support you. Thanks so much. Chat soon. Bye.